As you can probably tell, visiting galleries and museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And our new sponsor, the National Art Pass, makes that a whole lot easier, smoother and cheaper for us art lovers and gallery goers. Not only does the National Art Pass grant you free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, such as Kensington Palace, Cardiff Castle and the Horniman Museum, it also gives 50% off major exhibitions at places such as the British Museum, Tate, v National Gallery, National Portrait Gallery and so many more. And we all know that they have some pretty good upcoming and current exhibitions, from Dora Maar at the Tate Modern to Elizabeth Payton at the National Portrait Gallery. Membership is just £70 for an entire year, and for those under 30, it's a mere £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fev when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities. So you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm very excited to say that my guest today is the brilliant artist Helen Downey, who goes under the name of Unskilled Worker. A self-taught painter, Unskilled Worker is known for her intensely vibrant and poetic dreamlike canvases, full of her very personal portrayals of people, from those in her imagination to those who featured in her past and those who feature in her present. Drawing upon a broad spectrum of influences, her evocative work has an intimate quality that draws the viewer into a highly atmospheric world of childlike innocence, suggestive of darker times. Unskilled Worker rose to prominence by sharing her work online, predominantly via Instagram, which caught the attention of Nick Knight, who offered her a residency, and then later the fashion brand Gucci, who exhibited her work at the Minsheng Art Museum in Shanghai, and who launched a collection featuring her work. The artist's work has since been exhibited widely in museums across London, Hong Kong, Tokyo and Seoul, and she says that there hasn't been a day gone by for the past six years where she hasn't not painted. Welcome Unskilled Worker, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me here. So for those who perhaps haven't been lucky enough to witness your fantastic paintings, please could you kind of describe the aesthetic of them? It's so difficult to look at your own work and to understand actually to be able to describe it because it's in the doing of it that you have the you know the feelings around it but I suppose if I was to stand in front of it and and occasionally a lot of work came back from an exhibition in Seoul and I hadn't seen it for a year and there was enough time to actually be able to see it almost as if I hadn't made it it's very bright I hope that it's convincing I hope that it's like a a world that may exist. That's what I like. That's what I would like to think that people see. It is. It's dreamlike. 
but something about maybe an alternative reality. I guess your work as well betrays so many kind of stories and imaginations and worlds. For me as a viewer, I feel completely transported. I think it's very remarkable. But I say in my introduction that there hasn't been a day that has gone by in the past six years where you haven't not painted, because actually that was when you started. It was 2013. You were 48 years old. What made you want to start painting then? I'm not sure. It really was a whim. It came out of nowhere and I thought that I'd paint for six weeks when I started. But as I, I just couldn't put anything down. It became obsessive almost from the very first painting. I had a lot of regret that I hadn't started sooner and I knew that I had a long way to go. I knew that I had hours and hours and hours of work in front of me to make anything that resembled the images that were in my head. Were those images always there, do you think? I think they're images that have been collected through my life. You know, I, I sometimes think I'm making art for my seven-year-old self to try and make sense of my life experience. So it's a, they're a kind of mashup of everything that's been in many ways. I don't think people realise that when they're looking at them. I don't think people realise that sometimes they're quite autobiographical. Yeah, I just knew that I would have to paint a lot and my life had to change. I mean, if you go from being a very sociable person because you have time to be very sociable to painting 10 hours a day, your life changes the way that you just to go from somebody that's around a lot of people all of the time to somebody that isn't, that's in a room on their own. Do you think you'd ever even toyed with the idea when you were younger? Always as a child, I just expected to be an artist. Uh, there wasn't anything else ever. And then... My adolescence was difficult, tricky, unruly, and that went on for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and at 48, it really was like waking up. I mean, I found getting older has made my life simpler. It was probably that there was just room because yeah. it was almost like falling in love and you have to have space in your head to be able to do that. So it was, it was like falling in love. It's been like a lover, <laughs> a mad lover. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And what was it that you kind of initially painted? Just faces because I I took off where I left off. You know, so at 14, when I stopped, that's what I was, that's what I was painting, faces. I didn't get it together enough at school to do O-level art. So, yeah, just faces. So that's what I started painting, but with no thought as to any outcome. And why give yourself that six weeks? I'm not sure. It just sounded like a good number. I think the fear was there right at the beginning, like looking at it, and that's never left. Looking at a blank sheet is really quite terrifying, partly because of all the possibilities and what it could be. So I think it, there was a lot of fear in the beginning and I really had to just get on and do it. I think right in the beginning, I felt that the, the artwork should take about five minutes because that's what I'd seen. <laughs> yeah. And then I think materials is just playing. It's like being a child. You know, you feel, I really did feel about seven years old with the same kind of excitement, like immediately couldn't sleep at night if a painting wasn't just, just how I was when I was six or seven at school. For me, painting, the process of painting is continually being disappointed continually wanting to adjust to continually being unsatisfied until you know now the paintings take around seven weeks so I have six weeks of that feeling 
I love how you started out just thinking it was five minutes. Yeah, five <laughs> minutes. I remember the first one that took three days. I was thinking, this is a bit extreme. <laughs> no wonder it was keeping you up at night. Yeah, it, still now, though, the painting has to be in a place where I can walk away and leave it. If there's anything that I'm really, really unhappy about, I can't wake up to it the next day. So what did you see when you first started painting these particular faces? I think the biggest change, actually, was when I started painting boys. You know, before that was just a stream of girls. I didn't find them very interesting. I mean, right at the beginning, I didn't know that much about artists or art. I have to admit that at 48, I'd gone down a lot of rabbit holes, but not really, um, not in the way that I do now. But when I started painting boys, everything changed. It was almost like a, then I think in some way I tapped into something that was subconscious and not in the forefront of my mind because the boys started to resemble people that I knew. And also the other thing that I noticed was that if I've tried to paint anybody that I did know from photographs, it didn't work. And I'd have to put the photograph away and actually almost morph into the person to be able to paint it. Well, I mean, it's kind of like in my introduction, I said, you paint these very personal portrayals of people. I think I can see you in every single portrait as well, whether it's a child, whether it's a boy, whether it's a frog or anything, you know. They're, they're, Especially they're, the yeah. frog. <laughs> <laughs> you feel very um, present in all the works. Do you think also painting like this has come from a kind of lifelong fascination with just people? Yeah, I've always been fascinated in people, but very much an observer. I've always been on the outside, always been on the outside. I mean, I can see that from the age of four when I started school, you know, never involved in groups of people, always skirting around the outside, kind of watching, I think, now. Do you think that's why you kind of paint these imagined worlds in a way? Because you imagine what it's like to kind of be inside that painting? Yeah, I mean, when I'm painting these, they are real to me. It's a huge disappointment when I take them off the wall. After I've finished a painting, I always get quite depressed because it's just a piece of paper. But my friend said, well, Mona Lisa's painted on just a piece of canvas. <laughs> But it's totally not. I mean, yours are these worlds. They are these kind of alternate universes where I think there's so much to them. There's so much happiness and kind of beauty and sort of celestial-like qualities to it. But there's also this sort of dark side to all of them. There is a dark side, yeah. I mean, that's how I think I think I just try and paint how my life has been. I mean, because I don't keep sketchbooks. So you sketch just directly onto the paper? Yeah. One of the reasons that I don't keep sketchbooks, probably all of the reason, is being self-taught. You know, I would think that most artists that have been through the system, you have to keep a sketchbook. But for me, once I start, the emotional attachment to a work comes really, really quick. You know, almost as soon as the first face is in, it's always around the human subjects. What do you often start with? Generally the eyes, actually. I feel... Once the eyes are looking out at me, I almost feel that I have a responsibility to paint them a world mm. to live in. And if I kept sketchbooks, I wouldn't know how that worked. Sometimes I think I should, you know, because they're halfway through a painting when I really haven't got a clue where this thing is going. I think if you had kept sketchbooks, you might be able to look and see. They can start off with one idea and then morph into another. Do you think there are sort of characters that recur throughout your paintings? Yes. There's an absent mother, 
that occurs in lots of the paintings. But when I talk about this stuff, it's not in a judgmental way. Mm. But there's a lot of addiction, like the, the addiction monkey has been in a lot. And generally that equates to one of the other characters that will be in the painting. They have, I suppose it's everything that I've made, like the map of my life has now become a kind of made into symbols that find them, their way into these paintings. Do you think that this world, because your work is so distinctively you and actually has been quite consistent in a way since you started painting. There are these, you know, since I've been coming to your house, you know, for the last three years, there are these figures that keep cropping up. Was that world always in your mind? Do you kind of see that world in your mind before putting it onto the canvas? I do now. Before I start a painting, I have a very... Um, you know, your peripheral vision or, or whatever it is, your mind's eye constructs an incredible image that actually your hand is just never going to be able to carry out. It's like a dreamlike state. And generally, I don't start a painting until that is quite a concrete image in my mind. But having said that, the painting won't stick with that. It just, it will morph and flow through to be something else. And do you think as well you're playing around with the psyche of people in your work? Do you think they have minds? Yes, they have. By the time they're painted, they're talking. And they always know they're having their portrait painted. So they're always posed for a portrait. Part of that is just the uneasiness I feel of having my photograph taken. So these people are kind of trying to put on their best face but it doesn't quite work sometimes there is definitely kind of something beyond them i mean one work that you've made that particularly strikes me is the work called ted and that oh, where's I think, ted yeah where's ted and and when i first saw that i mean coming back to the idea of painting boys as well rather than girls and actually what it's like to be in the mind of a boy you know I mean yeah. as a woman I can't imagine but it's so interesting to project and I've spoken to portrait painters about this and it's almost this kind of fantasy of what it's like but this work in particularly Ted it's always in my mind in a strange way because am I right in thinking it was a man from your past yeah he was a friend that I met when I was maybe 13 14 and the last time I saw him I would have been 21 22 I've had a very fractured past and sometimes it's always amazed me how there was a day when it was the last time that I saw Ted, but on that day, I didn't know it would be the last time. And you know, at 21, when you've known someone since you were 14, that's a big part of your life, you know, um, and to just never see someone again. And I don't know where he is. I don't know what happened to him. So where's Ted was actually a painting to try and find him in a way. Did you know that, that was going to be the outcome no, of the painting? I didn't. I think sometimes my hand will follow a line and that line somewhere in the subconscious will say, that's Ted's eye. And then the subconscious will start building up the rest of Ted's face. And I think that happens in a lot of the paintings. So I can find myself reaching for a colour and my logic will interrupt and say, no, 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 it's not that one. And it will always be wrong because my subconscious is seeing the bigger picture. So with a painting like Ted, I think that was thrown up. And had you even thought about him for the last how many years? Oh, yeah, I think about Ted a lot. I think the older I get, the more I think about the people that I left behind. So the paintings are also sometimes just like fractured memories. You think, this is so strange, how that can happen. And what's it like reconnecting with these people? 
through the medium of paint because in a strange way it's it is Ted looking back at you it's sad actually because I haven't found him I don't know where he is but also um when I started painting at 48 there was so much from my past that I hadn't looked at that just happened and then gets locked away and you just move on you just move on through life and I started painting and this stuff came out and when I was 20 my boyfriend died in a car crash and I was pregnant with my eldest son and of course there's grief lots of grief that over time lessens and life completely changed and then as I got older I, I think I would begin to get very sad that he had missed so much. Yeah. You know, to die, he was 21 when he died. There was music that he hadn't heard. He'd never heard a Radiohead song. (laughs) He'd never heard a dance music song, you know. And I think he turned up in a lot of the paintings as a way to keep him in the world somehow. You know, one of the hardest things when somebody dies, or the hardest thing, is that they just stop existing. They're gone. I don't know if we ever really accept that. And I think when I started painting, I didn't have to accept it. So he would come out and people would think all of the paintings looked like my eldest son, but it wasn't. It wasn't that they looked like him. They looked like Martin. And sometimes I'll put his initials into paintings. In one of the paintings is kind of morbidly the the car that he crashed in when he died. Yeah. Just in the roots of a tree. Um, Do you think you intentionally even mean to paint these? No, with the car being woven into the roots of of a tree, it's in a, a painting called How to Die and Live Anyway. That It just comes as I'm drawing out, you know, a car woven through the roots. And then as I'm painting it, I realise what it's doing there. And also how... Something that happened in a split second has such a profound effect and is woven into the roots, my roots, you know. And as time goes on, you you begin to realise how, or I've, I've begun to realise how, because within a few generations, that life's gone. Yeah. Which is such a strange thought, because at the time when you're living, it feels so concrete. It's such a strange thought that it will, everything that you know will just be washed away. I think that runs through the paintings a lot. Impermanence and humans trying to make things permanent. In that painting is a Concorde flying in the sky as well. I remember at seven being so excited about Concorde. Just the shape of it. Yeah. But of course it wasn't permanent. It blew up. And then it stopped. And it's such a shock when things like that happen because you think, it's well, this is it. Concord will be here forever. No, and nothing is. There's an element when I'm painting of understanding that everything's moving, everything's passing, nothing's permanent, transient. It's all transient. It will all go. It will just get washed away. I think that's so interesting because as well, you know, you are immortalising people you know, but you're also immortalising people who were famous, you know, prolific writers like Oscar Wilde, you've uh, portrayed Radcliffe Hall, but you really kind of focus on them as people, I guess. And it's interesting kind of talking about this impermanence of everything and impermanence of people. And what does it mean to kind of 
immortalize someone into a painting because in a way paintings outlive us all in a kind of strange way i hope so although my paintings are on paper which i think ties into the feeling of paper not being permanent but maybe fabriano smooth is <laughs> <laughs> um oscar wilde's in a lot of the paintings he walks through and leaves his glove i just feel so bad for him i've always felt so bad for him one of my favorite books is the picture of dorian gray i've always felt bad for the way his life turned i just think he was terrifying i always think i would really like to meet him but generally if i feel that i want to paint somebody like the same with radcliffe hall with radcliffe hall it was just after reading the well of loneliness it was just a feeling of how must that feel to be somewhere where you don't fit anywhere i've painted radcliffe hall twice so everything in that painting is to do with a discomfort in one's own skin, which I really relate to. I really relate to people that feel actually uncomfortable, probably being human almost. Mm. Like this skin that we're held in is an uncomfortable place to be. But they're often also sort of trapped in these interior settings as well. If I think about the Radcliffe Hall work or the Oscar Wilde work, you know, both of them do have these very like sort of trapped element, you know, that there, there, there's so much going on, there's so much fuss and actually what's important here? What should we be focusing on? And the fact that there is this kind of light outside, but yet it's so small. You've got this beautifully kind of gilded window with this birdcage in front of it and it almost looks like a picture. Are they in that real world? I think most of the paintings are trapped. When I make a painting, it, it has to make sense to the way that I'm feeling. I think the paintings have a sense of overwhelmingness about them, mm. of being overwhelmed. But then also from another, you know, there's also a story within it. I mean, Bosey in that painting is kind of lying there, fully clothed, like he's ready to get up and walk off at any time. I mean, he looks like a boy compared to Oscar Wilde as well. And Oscar Wilde feels like he's almost trapping him. Yet he's closer to us on the canvas as though he has all the freedom in the world and he's closer to the trees outside. I think Bosie in that situation was able just to get up and walk away. I think Oscar, I mean, it was, it, it ruined him. You know, it, it, it ruined his life. Completely took him apart. And the story doesn't really end there. You know, it's such a strange story the Oscar Wilde life and what happened after he died. Bosie's either great-great-niece or great-great-granddaughter went to work in Reading Jail and she went to work in Reading Jail because she felt so badly about what had happened to Oscar Wilde um, in some way of making amends. And I think, for me, a lot of my paintings can be about that, about making amends to someone. There has to be a feeling of misjustice. Mm. And then you think of how much money his work has generated since then. And for him to die totally, you know, destitute and in, a, in such a bad state is so sad. But also that kind of feeling of making amends. I mean, one of your works that was actually in my first show back in 2016 at English Idol 2, which shows a really kind of beautiful, completely gorgeous holy trinity almost of a family yeah mixed race couple and this is based on charlottesville yeah i felt so upset and angry 
I mean, sometimes you can look at the way that people behave in life and just think it's, like, it's such a dark fairy tale. Yeah. That these people want to march through quite a small place and then create absolute havoc around such hate. You know, so my, I'm not good with words around this stuff, so I'd rather paint it. It's just a, a painting that, well, this is how it is. This is how it must be. You know, people from all different races fall in love and they have children and this is it. These people that hate are in the minority. Yeah, they feel But like- they have such a loud voice, don't they? But what I love about this work as well is that you're just kind of concentrating on the kind of beauty of it all. I'm just trying to chuck a load of love at it in a way because I think that anything else actually is an absence of love. I think something that always, I mean, you touched on it earlier, always strikes me with the work is the eyes. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, I'm looking at you right now and I see you in so many of these characters. I see, I see them as the characters, but I see your eyes popping up everywhere. They are on the page. Do you think that a lot of this work is autobiographical? Yeah, I think it's everything. It's what you're going through right now, mashed up with what you went through a couple of months ago and then what you went through, you know, it's layers of life. Because mm. memory is such a strange thing. It's like a broken mirror. There's bits, if you break a mirror, then you'll see different reflections. And I think it's, a, it's like that. Because also I know that you do put yourself in a lot of these works, whether that be through a kind of smashed iPhone or the monkey or yourself yeah. as an older person, as a younger person, as a... Yeah. Do you think that's a kind of, again, a product of the fact that you are this observer, that you are the spectator, you're constantly there looking on the periphery of what is happening with the main event? I'm not sure why I put myself into the work. I, I don't always, it just, sometimes it just feels right to do that. A lot of... It's not logical, it's a feeling, it's an emotion, and it feels right. Sometimes it's not until afterwards that I can actually see what's been going on, what the work is attempting to say. But then it's only to me, see, somebody else looking at it may see something completely different, Mm. depending on their reference system, you know, what they've experienced in their life. It always amazes me when people really get it. And some people do, they write to me, on Instagram, and I think they've really understood that piece of work, which is really nice when that happens. But equally so, it's like if when an author writes a book, you can't keep hold of the way somebody sees those words, and you can't keep hold of the way somebody listens to a track, and you can't keep hold of the way somebody sees a painting. They'll see it as they wish to see it and sometimes they won't even be aware of of what their reference set is especially now i mean with with them being posted on instagram it's completely global so somebody in turkey's got a very different reference set even though the world has got smaller and we're all melding into one culture i'm intrigued as well about how you connect with people because obviously your work is mainly exhibited on instagram which is kind of hilarious because when i when i look at your work in the flesh in your studio there's so much to it. It's almost a shame that people witness it on this tiny screen. How do you feel about that? Not very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. You know, I think I don't usually post a work until three or four weeks after it's painted, partly because I have to let go of it, because to see it that small is quite painful. But having said that, I think that we've all built up a way of seeing that when you're looking at Instagram, 
something that's happening is that you're no longer seeing these images held on your phone. It is like going into another world. The whole system is like another world that actually I think is the same as this world, really. It just happens to be held on a device. But they are very different in real life because they're so textured. Yeah. But I never create for Instagram. Mm. Um, It doesn't inform the work. Because I should add that it was kind of soon after you started painting that you did start actually uploading works online. It was almost immediate, actually. It was immediate. The name Unskilled Worker was already there. I'd had it in my head for years and years. And when, after I'd painted the first painting and someone said, oh, you should put it on Instagram, I thought, oh, I've already got an account. It's Unskilled Worker. It wasn't really a conscious thing that this name goes with this work. The name had been there for a long, long time with no usage. And did it kind of happen overnight that you got? I mean, bearing in mind, you have nearly 300,000 followers. It didn't feel like overnight. I think after the first year, it was like a 1,000. And then the following year, it was around 180. Oh, my gosh. So it just grew. And at first, it was overwhelming. And... I can't really say I enjoyed it when it blew up massively. It's one of those things that you think you would like, but actually when it happens, I went very shy. I used to speak a lot more before that happened. Do you think it almost took over what you were doing? Yeah, I've really had to do a lot of thinking around it, you know, of how to deal with that side. Because we're actually hardwired to want approval. It's an incredible app. But whether it was made knowing how the human brain reacts or not, that's what it's done. It's actually changed the way that we think. I do grieve for the time before it. And I also think that that maybe one of the reasons they take seven weeks is a reaction against fast images. Because I know that you also use the motif of the smashed iPhone. Yeah. So much in your work is that kind of love-hate relationship. Yeah, definitely. With technology. Definitely. I feel it's really difficult to be completely present in where I am at any time. Also, have you ever thought about how much information actually can our heads hold? Mm. I mean, there must come a point where it's just not going to hold anymore. But then I'm always amazed at how many songs I know. You know, how many songs can your brain hold? Maybe it's like that with everything. <laughs> Maybe it is kind of infinite. Well, music is a big part of your work. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I'd rather be a musician. (laughs) (laughs) Music for me is the highest art form. You know, I really feel, I mean, it can really, really change the way I feel. But also it's interesting because so much of your work is about feeling and it is about this kind of psyche and this transformation and what the character's going through and everything. And do you think an element of that is the fact that you are self-taught? You know, so many musicians are self-taught. You don't have to have this kind of formal training, this degree, PhD, master's, whatever. You know, it's it's, it's you. It's the feeling. It's hard for me to know how it would have been if I had had a formal training, what my work would be like. I suspect it wouldn't be anything as it is now, which might have been good. I do think that painting is, for me, is like making music in a way. You know, there's layers. There's feeling... The thing I love about music is that it seems to last a lot longer. I don't think people look so much anymore. I really do believe there is a mystical side of creating, which artists don't talk about very much. 
I think it can come out after an artist has died. It's like safe to talk about that side. But if you talk about it as an artist, it can be a bit too hocus pocus. <laughs> I have this thought that when people stand in front of a painting, that there's a transference of energy, that they get some of the energy that the artist had when the work was being painted. Ad Reinhardt, I had no idea or understanding about his paintings. And I'd been talking to a friend the day before I went to the Abstract Expressionism exhibition at the Royal Academy. And he was saying to me, Helen, people don't look at art anymore. They give it like 10 seconds and then move on. And he said, to really look at an artwork, you have to be it's at least 15 minutes. So I was in the Abstract Expressionism exhibition and it was really busy, too busy. And the only space was in front of an Ad Reinhardt painting. And there was a bench. And I walked past it and I just thought, that's rubbish. Just a black, <laughs> a black canvas, that's rubbish. And then my friend's words came into my head. So I sat down and looked at the painting and I looked and looked and then I started crying it was really embarrassing <laughs> it was really embarrassing the colors came out of the painting and started sort of dancing in front of the painting I just thought this is so strange and it just made me cry mm. and I just thought then yeah that is it that's the energy transference and then I was telling my friend about that experience and he told me, without thinking anything strange, that it was the same painting that he'd sat in front of every day in his lunch hour in New York, I think in the 80s. And I just thought, maybe paintings actually can suck in some of your energy too then and then throw it back out. Mm. I mean, that sounds totally nuts. But if that kind of thing doesn't happen, then what are we doing it for? Yeah. No, I think it's such a personal thing, you know. And I think through your works make sense of the world. I think portraiture is such an interesting thing because it's a projection of people. Yeah, but for me, it was also a place to put elements of my character that actually had never worked, were quite difficult to deal with, like obsessional thinking. And suddenly I found this thing that actually that's what you needed to do it. So that was huge. Like the things that had gone against me actually in painting was exactly what I needed. And then I'm intrigued as well about your... Because a few years ago I came over and you showed me a self-portrait... Yeah. ...that you'd made. And you showed sort of four different stages in your life. You showed you being a baby, you being a child, you being, a, I think, someone in their 20s and where you are now. And, and what was that process like, kind of looking at... Was that the first self-portrait that you tackled and what was, what was the process like? It was the first self-portrait and it was... You know, sometimes you... Um, well, I do. I just think that I can tell myself something. Like when I'm painting people, there will come a point where I actually fall in love with them. Mm. It's like a real love, tenderness feeling with all of them, really. Um, but I kind of thought that I had just been telling myself that story. But in that painting, I really understood that because the 24-year-old me, I really felt a lot of tenderness towards felt very sad about the 24-year-old me. I remembered it. it was very difficult. I found getting older much easier. That was nice to know that, no, I wasn't making this stuff up. I really do fall in love. 
Yeah. When I paint people. And again, that kind of idea of making things right by putting your now self in that and not being that 24-year-old self. Yeah. I think I'm holding paintbrushes. <laughs> I like painting the 12-year-old me too. Remembering what that was like. So as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we always ask our guests if there were a female artist, living or dead, who would it be and what would you say to them? Well, it would be Alice Neal, but I honestly, I think I'd run. <laughs> I, I think I'd be too scared to say anything. Why Alice Neal? Why would you want to meet her? Oh, you know, I just loved her paintings before I knew her story. You just get the absolute feeling of the expression in her work. The absolute feeling of who the person is. I mean, just a flicker of arrogance. You know, in most of the men she has that. Have you noticed? Totally. A lot of the men she paints, you can see that they're, they're kind of, I'm a man. It's like, that's how men were then, right? It was a man, totally 100% a man's world. And she painted that, but on her terms. Mm. And there's a lot of humour in her work, I think. But I think what's interesting about the sort of parallels between both of your work is that what you were talking about earlier, but actually carrying a lot of your past into your paintings. I think she did that. I think there is a lot of her in those works and a lot of what she's gone through, especially the works of her sons and the yeah. fact that she knows she's a single mother yeah. and she has these different sons from these different fathers and she has to make a living by painting this work. Yeah. And there's that detachment and there is that that past that comes into yeah, the world. But never heavy though. And I think that's the, I hope people don't think with, that with my work, it's been maudling or heavy. I don't take life very seriously. <laughs> you know, things, just stuff happens. Yeah. Good and bad. The bad is usually as interesting as the good. We're all hanging on golden threads and everyone's trying to pretend they're not. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. I think that's what all artists are doing anyway, just trying to put themselves into a different form, maybe morphing into something different and then disappearing themselves. Mm. You know, but then some artists do like to be seen. I don't really. I'd rather just the work. So if Alison Neal was in this room right now, would you say anything to her or just run? <laughs> I'd still just run. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Unskilled Worker, for coming on the podcast today. Oh, thank you, Katie. Thank you all so much for listening to the ninth episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the incredible Helen Downey, also known as Unskilled Worker. It was so fascinating to hear her discuss her career so far, and I am so inspired at how much she has created despite only picking up a paintbrush, age 48. This podcast was recorded and sound edited by the brilliant Ellie Clifford. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were able to rate and leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Thanks to the National Art Pass, you can now access free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, plus 50% off major exhibitions such as the British Museum and Tate. Membership is just £70 per year and for those under 30, it's just £45. And for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible.